Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time together as we celebrate our salvation. And every time we gather, Lord, really truly is a celebration that you've saved us. The song has reminded us we lift our eyes to you, Jesus. Without you, we have nothing. The disciples said that to Jesus, and we repeat that. You, you indeed have the words of life. And so each and every week is a celebration of what you have done. And we turn to your word, because in your word contains those words of life. We reject our own, Lord, and our, even our own thoughts and ambitions, Lord, can lead us astray, so we turn to a sufficient book, the word of God, and we learn from it. We put our lives under it, and we're here to do that again. Lord, we thank you for the Hargrave family. We thank you for Pastor Roy. What a blessing, Lord, as a pastor to come in behind a man who faithfully preached the word. And we pray for this family as they see you graciously and sovereignly take their beloved father and husband and grandfather to be with them, with you. We pray that you would strengthen them, Lord. Thank you for this church. That May we continue, Lord, those that remain, continue to be faithful to the word, preaching it, holding to it, obeying to it, submitting to the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ each and every day, Lord. Father, there's others that are not well, Lord. There's some going through procedures this week. Some have had surgery this last week. Lord, please strengthen them, Lord. Return them to us. They're part of our family. We want them here with us, Lord. And so we pray that you would strengthen. For those that um, do not have the strength to return to church, Lord, we pray for them as many watch now, Lord, that you would help them know we love them, but more importantly, you are with them. You will not abandon them in their hour of need. Lord, we thank you for that. Lastly, Lord, we, we praise you for our missionaries that are around the world, Lord. Such a joy and delight to partner with them. As they spread the gospel, they go where we can't always go, Lord. We thank you that you've sent them. Help us to hold that rope tight as they go, Lord, and give to the work of the ministry, Lord, around the world. Lord, bless our teaching. Bless the time in the word now. May it pierce our hearts and minds, and may we know you and love you better when we leave this room. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, introductions to sermons are always uh, important. We teach in our preaching labs, you know, set the hook, let them know where you're going. And, uh, uh, and so introductions are great, but they're always some bit difficult uh, to put together at times because you really want people to understand where we're going to go. I've written an introduction, um, and as you know, my introductions uh, can be lengthy at times just because it's so fun to uh, set everything up. But this morning I, I came into my office and um, there were some emails as usual in the inbox and I tried to take a peek at them, not try to get too invested in them. But one was from my son. Uh, many of you know I have a, two sons that are in the military. One is deployed and it said this. I couldn't think of a better intro to today's sermon. He said, hey dad, just watched last week's sermon and was able to use an online Bible to follow along. Very good sermon, dad. It's amazing, after all the works uh, that Jesus did, the Pharisees could not believe in him and see that he had authority over everything. Same goes here today. Everyone in my squad has heard the Bible and Jesus, a lot of it from me, but they refuse to believe in it. Let alone they mock it even when we were in situations where we could very easily lose our lives and they just don't seem to care about what happens after they die. 
It just makes me incredibly sad that they won't accept that Jesus is the authority over life and death. And they are set for hell. But they will, but they will still sit and mock even me and the Bible. It's very encouraging to read the things that Jesus had to go through dealing with these wicked people and how he responded. He teaches me how I can better respond to situations like that. I am very thankful for the way you raised me and introduced me to a hope that most of the world does not have. I love you, Dad. And I'm thankful for your sermons and faithful ministry to the Lord because I know you have been persecuted even more than I know. I love you, Dad. Love, Canon. Pretty good introduction to uh, the context of what is going on there. Um, I know my wife had not heard that email yet. But as we look at this text, particularly at the close of 11 and 12, um, there's, there's so much truth here that jumps off the page. As we begin to dive into this, we, we're reminded, and you'll be reminded as we go through this, that through church history, many have claimed that Jesus was not fully God. This is the battle of, of the true faith is to present Jesus as God. Most reject him as that. They rejected him that he knew the future. They would say there was no one that could know that but God. He held authority over all those things and Jesus is gonna refute that in this text that he did know the future. They wouldn't admit that, that he was God but they would admit maybe he was a good man. Down through history, we know that some just thought he was a good man and unknowingly became a martyr. Some claimed him just to be a prophet. Others, some kind of incredible wise man. Some saw him as a crusader for freedom. Over somewhere, historians tell us that over somewhere around 100 men came through the silent years, the 400 years between Old Testament and New Testament, claiming to be the Messiah. Many thought he was just one of them. Still others thought he was a zealot seeking, a, seeking to start some kind of revolution that went horribly wrong and ended up in his own death. When we think about this, all of these reject Christ's perfect balance between his deity and his humanity. And they reject and don't understand and can't even imagine that our God would lay out a plan, purposely plan the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and that this son would share his glory. Paul ran into this very early in the New Testament church. He deals with it this way. He says in Colossians 2, 9, for in him, that's Jesus Christ, all the fullness of deity bodily dwells. Everything that God is, Jesus is. This is not a new argument. This is not a new defense that we have as Christians. The church has been defending this since the beginning of it. However, the Bible does tell us that Jesus grew in wisdom and was perfected in a process through suffering. God was preparing him moment by moment, event by event, to get ready for what we're going to see in the next two days, biblically speaking, of Jesus' death. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter five. We looked at this text this week in Christology in the seminary. and We sat there and marveled at it. And I thought I would use this this morning as we introduce this tremendous parable that's going to expose these men who had so much hatred towards Jesus. But yet God was using this to show us who Jesus was. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 through 9 
It reads this way, in the days of his flesh, isn't that interesting expression, in his incarnation, in the days when he stepped out of heaven and added to him flesh, fully God, but added to his nature, flesh, humanity. In the days of his flesh, the Bible says, he offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. So you, you can see that as a garden scene. In fact, this verse probably lets us know there were other times that Jesus knew what was coming. But he submitted to the Father's plan. Look at verse 8. And although he was a son, look at this, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obeyed him the source of eternal life. I love that phrase. And being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So this, this verse teaches us, these verses teach us that Christ, he living as a full man, taking on flesh, not using his divine prerogative for his own benefit to make his life easy, he progressively obeyed the Father in each and every aspect of God's plan all the way to his death and resurrection. Piper says it this way, he said, therefore when the Bible says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, it does not mean that he learned to stop disobeying. It means that with each new trial, he learned in practice and in pain what it means to obey. When it says that he was made perfect through suffering, it does not mean that he was gradually getting rid of defects. It means that he was gradually fulfilling the perfect righteousness that he had to have in order to save us. That's what those verses mean. And so in other words, there was this ever-growing obedience in each situation that this divinely endowed Savior who is fully man, fully God, is fulfilling perfectly. And so we see, and we're going to see shortly here, as Christ's obedience comes to this climax, he's obeying the Father's will, and, and he's now taking upon himself to fulfill the complete law, to be the perfect sacrifice in every different event he comes to he handles perfectly so when he hangs on that cross and the father judges him like he committed our sins he is that perfect sacrifice and this here this this lesson that we're going to look at today teaches us that now i want to make sure that we understand that though he has humbled himself and he has been perfected through his obedience meaning every situation he has perfectly handling he still was God and he still had authority over all that was happening John chapter 10 verse 7 through 18 starts this way this little phrase will catch your attention for this reason the father loves me Jesus says I think that should catch your attention when you read this why does the father love the son it says for this reason the father loves me and he says this because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again no, no one takes it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up. The father loves the son because he has full authority over his life. He is not some kind of puppet. He is not some kind of second in command. He has full authority. And the father loves him because he shares that divine glory that God shares with him equally. What an amazing statement there. 
Jesus, after the triumphal entry, um, most of us kind of forget that there was three times God spoke out of heaven. One, he spoke at his baptism, right? This is my beloved son. Two, he spoke out of the clouds on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew chapter 17. This is my beloved son. The third time he does this is right after he comes into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry. John chapter 12, verse 27. Just listen to this. My soul, now my soul has become troubled. He's in a crowd. These people have been following him. He's speaking this out with this crowd around him. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Question mark. But for this purpose, I came for this hour. Oh, he knows exactly what's going on. He knows the hour of his death. As we wait for our beloved pastor and friend, for the Lord to take him, we don't know that hour. The Lord knew his hour. Knew exactly. He goes on to say this. Then um, He says, Father, glorify your name. And then the voice comes out of heaven. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. You had glory with me from eternity past. You veiled that in order to be the 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 sacrificial, fully man, representative of God to come on this earth to die for them and I will re-glorify you. I will give you all that glory. I'll unveil your glory once again when you ascend to me is what he is saying. So the crowd heard this and they stood by and, and some were saying it was thunder. Some were saying it was an angel. But verse 30, Jesus answered and said, the voice has come not for my sake, but for your sake. Now judgment is upon the world and the ruler of the world will be cast out and if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. See, he had an unmistakable goal. Put me on that cross and I'll draw people from every tribe, tongue, nation to myself. And you and I, we do that same thing. I encourage people all the time, lift him up. You wanna see people get saved? You want family members? Thank you over there, <laughs> from the mouth of babes. <laughs> lift him up. Lift him up. Don't lift yourself up. Lift up Christ. If he's lifted up, he draws all men to himself, and that's what he knew. He knew that was what had to take place here. And so there's no doubt that Jesus is fully on board with the plan of the Father. He has full control. He's walking moment by moment perfection by perfection in each trial coming his way in this one in Mark 12 is no different. Well, just a couple more thoughts here. The message doesn't stop with Jesus. The, the apostles picked this up. And they, they know that Jesus is part of the plan of God. He's uh, an essential part of the plan of God. He know, they know that there's no other way to him except through them, and, uh, except through Jesus. And so in Acts 2, in this great uh, just marvelous sermon that preaches at the birth of the church. Peter says this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of guilty men. So they know it. They know that Jesus was in full control, though in the text here, they're still trying to figure out what Jesus is gonna do. They're still worrying about who's gonna be on the right and the left. But as the Holy Spirit falls upon them, they know exactly this was God's plan. They became convinced of these things. So in our text, as we turn to Mark chapter 12, in our text, it's Wednesday before Christ's death on Friday. The final confrontation has begun, and this confrontation is going to work its way right up to the cross. And this confrontation with these religious leaders is intensing. 
The religious leaders are threatened, they're mad, they're fearful, and they're planning. They're planning to murder the Lord Jesus Christ. Where Christ is in full control of his situation, he's fully also submitting to the Father's plan, these men are in full control of their Father as well. Mark, uh, John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus had already said this. He's speaking to these Pharisees. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desire of your father. Can you imagine sitting there and hearing Jesus say that? You're, you're of your father, the devil, and you want the same things he wants. And then he goes on to say, he was a murderer, Satan, from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he, speaks, uh, whenever, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks it from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of liars, and he connects them with Satan. This is what Jesus is up against. These men, having failed to trap Jesus with their question that we saw at the end of verse 11, chapter 11, and it gets turned back on him. And remember, they, if they answered that question, they would have been forced to say that John the Baptist and you, Jesus Christ, are sent from God and have the authority and power of God, and they wouldn't answer it. Because Jesus so wisely ran them into that corner. And even worse, think about this. Here's these men, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. This was probably a representation, as we saw last week, from the Sanhedrin. There's scribes and Pharisees all coming, this group that has been delegated to come from them. These are those who are the ones who help the nation, help the nation stay under the law of God, to fulfill the God. They're the spiritual overseers. Now think about this. I think the Ten Commandments are fairly clear. <laughs> Aren't they? Like, thou shalt not. I think it's not, thou shalt might kind of think about I believe there's one in there that says thou shalt not kill. <laughs> the word is murder. And yet that's exactly what the plots, and we'll see in this text, that they're going to do. And Jesus being God, full knowledge, knowing the future, knowing the hearts and minds before their thoughts were even formed, he knows them. He is going to expose them through this masterful parable. And he will draw them into this dramatic, unforgettable story as we go through this that graphically reveals their perverse and murderous plan. And don't forget, just before we look at this, don't forget the crowd's now listening to this. They've seen the, the, the debate between them with the questioning. They're right there. All of this in chapter 12, the crowd is right there. Remember, he's in the temple. He's walking in the corridors, teaching. They're all there to hear this. And so Jesus begins a series of parables here. Mark only records one of them. Matthew records three of them here. And here are four thoughts of the parable of prophecy and truth. Thought number one, a parable that reveals the heart. A parable that reveals the heart. Let me just read these first nine verses quickly here and kind of catch the flow and we'll make some comments about them. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower. And he rented it out to vine growers and, and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some and killing others. 
And he had one more to send, a beloved son. And he sent him last of all to them saying, they will respect my son. But the vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and inherit, the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and he'll destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Well, these verses here um, portray uh, a very masterful teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was a master at looking around him and, and using what was there. He often taught about the fields ripe and ready for harvest. And I don't know if he was near a vineyard within sight of the temple or not, but one of the things that the Lord Jesus does very, very well is he uses the Old Testament in his teachings. It's the word of God. In fact, Jesus quotes the Old Testament more than any author in the New Testament. And this time he chooses for his text, for this parable, to expose the hearts of men he chooses Isaiah chapter 5. Now, the Jews and the leaders knew this well. It was, a, it was a beloved passage. They cherished verse 1. They didn't like reading the rest of Isaiah 5, but they loved verse 1. It reads this way, and we're going to come and look at it in a minute here. But it says, Let me sing now of my beloved, my well-beloved, a song beloving, cons- uh, beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a fertile hill. They love to say that we're, we're the vineyard of God. They love to praise that. Now, they didn't read the rest of this, and that's what Jesus is going to bring their attention to. But if you examine both the first two verses of Isaiah and the first two verses of Mark, they are direct quotes. Now, look at verse 1 with me. He began to speak this parable. A man planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a vat under the vine breast, and built a tower. And he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now, notice the, the owner of the vineyard did everything possible to secure success here. You see this in this verse. He picks the right place. It's referred to the promised land flowing with milk and honey. He chooses the right vines to plant. And he clears the field. And, and when they cleared fields in those days and still in days of not recent too many years, they take the rocks out of the field and they use the rocks out of the field so they can farm well there and they make a wall there. Out west, um, we're very familiar with those that live out where, where we were raised at. There's still tons and tons of rock walls in that area from Chinese slave labor that was done in the west. A lot of people don't know that, that we enslaved a lot of Chinese people um, during that time. But uh, it was a way to keep things out and to, to get mainly the rocks out of your field and then put them out. So they used the rocks to build a wall around the vineyard. Notice, he also prepared a vine press, and he prepared a vat to harvest that juice. He built a tower for a lookout post for enemies. It had storage and shelter in for the workers. And then, and then he puts his choice vineyard in the hands of those he had divinely chose for a place of service to him and a place of safety. And once he had supplied everything they need, he went on a journey And he entrusted his precious vineyard to the tenants. Notice verse 2. At harvest time, he sent slaves to the the vine growers in order to receive some of the products, some of the fruit of the labor of the vineyards from the vine growers. When the harvest came, the true owner of the vineyard sent a servant for a collection of the fruit that should have been produced. It was a common practice 
Some, uh, some would rent it out for money. Some would give portions of what it is back to the owner. When I cowboyed, I, there was times I, I rode for ranches and they gave me cattle for riding. I exchanged that. Um, or sometimes they paid me. But here's what I always did. I always returned to the owner what was rightfully theirs. That's, that's a tenant. That's what he does. Notice verse 3. Well, they took him, this servant that was sent, and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So it turns out the tenants are a bunch of thieves and thugs. They quickly disregard the true owner and had no desire to please him. The servant that sent to him was just striving simply to obey what God had called him to do, what his master had sent him to do. Notice the word beat. It's an interesting word. I thought, well, how severe is this? Well, we get that, actually from that Greek word, we get the word to skin, You've heard that, well, they skinned him alive. You've heard that slogan? This is where this is coming from. This is horrible, horrible treatment, and we're not sure exactly what they did, but we notice that it's not nice, (laughs) and there's great harm done to this faithful servant of his master. Look at verse four. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. Well, undetermined, this patient and generous owner repeats the process in order to receive payment, fruit, from what rightly belongs to him. And this this faithful servant, think about this guy, he gets his head bashed in. And, And notice the last word there in that text, shamefully. This word means to dishonor. And you know where it's used too many times? It's used in the role of immorality. So I'm not sure what they did, but this, this was very dishonoring and immoral behavior that they did to this servant. You see, things are getting worse, aren't they? Look at verse five with me. Then he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. Beyond human kindness, the rightful owner keeps sending another servant and another servant. The Matthew account of this found in Matthew 21, 35 says they killed him and stoned him to death, this first guy in verse five. What a terrible death to get beat to death with stones. And I wanna make a point here just real quick and we can come back and note this later, but sin never lessens or stays the same. It always increases. That's what it does. And if not confessed and not repent, it will escalate. And you and I know that in our life. If you don't deal with sin, it will just get worse and worse and it'll start to spread and it'll spread to others around you. That's what sin does. Its goal is to destroy, kill, and break things. But this incredible vineyard owner, he still sins more. He sends many more, the text says. Look at that in verse five. Many more he sent. Some were beat, others were killed. This is ruthless, godless, and seared conscience of men that would do such a thing to the owner's servants. Notice verse six. He had one more to send. He's out of servants. <laughs> He's gonna send one more. And the Bible says there, you'll notice, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, they will respect my son. The godless tenants expected probably the owner to start some kind of legal transaction or, or possibly send an armed forces their way to take them out, 
to retaliate for these transgressions. But in a remarkable, remarkable turn of events, the vineyard owner sends his own son, the heir. Notice the word beloved. It's a beautiful word in the scriptures. It carries the idea of one not only greatly loved, but the unique one, the one and only. This was his only son. There, there were no other sons. This was it. He sends that, and so this owner sends the most precious possession he has, his son. And in his mind, he must have thought, they will see his relationship with me, and they will heed his word. They will know that my son shares equality with me and has authority to fulfill my will. Surely they will know that. But as amazingly gracious as the act of sending his own son was, the reaction to his grace was just the opposite. Notice verse 7. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. The inheritance will be ours. Verse 7, the vine growers, the tenants, see the son coming, and instead of reacting in joy, they planned, they, they, they planned in order what they might do to rightly get what belongs to him to have themselves. It's possible maybe they believe the owner of the vineyard was dead and, and they certainly acted that way. They acted like he was dead, like he had no cares, no concerns, that it wasn't his. But if they kill the rightful heir in their minds, then the land, the vineyard, becomes theirs through the years of working, a kind of statute of limitations in the ancient world. And so the murder was premeditated and calculated. Verse 8 they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Well, having made their evil decision, they took immediate action. Clearly, they overtook him and slew an innocent man. And wanting to appear as though there's no blood on their hands, they discarded the body outside the vineyard with no concern for his burial. You're following me, aren't you? Verse 9 what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. As the story hits its climax, the tension is growing most likely in the crowd that's pressing in on Jesus and listening. And Jesus asks the question, notice in this verse nine, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Matthew records their response. Mark records the response of Jesus. Matthew, the response from the people is this, they said to him, that's the crowd, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to the other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at proper season. That was what they said, the crowd. Notice that Mark records what Jesus says. He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. There's a, a, a return of the rightful owner but this time, this is, he's coming back, but this time he comes bearing a sword and the wicked tenants who murdered her son are destroyed and he, he graciously establishes new tenants. Now, doubtlessly at this point, as you have been walking along with this without me making um, clear application to the situation, those listening to this parable, both the crowd and the leaders are starting to understand, aren't they? Jesus has separated the condemned tenants from the righteous vineyard owner and his son. He has separated them. The instruction was all 
too obvious. This is a parable meant to reveal the heart of the wicked. Second thought. A parable that does not hide the truth. The Bible says that Jesus spoke parables in order to hide truth from them, right? He knew they were not of his elect. He knew that they were sent by Satan. He knew knew that most of them, outside of men like Nicodemus, were condemned already. The judgment had fallen on them already. Jesus uses those words. But in this case, he responds differently. He speaks a parable that they will understand. This parable does not hide the truth. And that's why the people said he will come and he will take those wretches to a wretched end and he'll rent the vineyard out to someone else. They knew it. It was clear. This was not hidden. It was a realization that Christ's parable was true of, the, of representing both history of Israel, past, present, and even future. Moreover, the fulfillment of the parable was the final playing out of the stage that God had set for the coming of this Messiah, and they could see it. As you most likely have connected, the owner of the vineyard is God. God loved the vineyard. He provided everything it needed for its success. Now, let's turn back to that passage that he was using in Isaiah. Once we've looked at the New Testament, let's look at the Old Testament. Go to Isaiah 5 with me. We're going to read the part they didn't like hearing. They love to think of themselves as the vineyard of God. They love to tell everybody that God was their God and and they, they they were his beautiful garden and so forth. And so they love to hear verse one. It said, let me sing now of my well-beloved, the song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. And then verse two, he dug around it, he removed the stones and he planted it with choice vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and he hewed out the wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And this is where they start to cut things off. They don't like this. It says, oh now, this is Isaiah speaking to the nation of Israel that's on their way to judgment, both the northern tribes and the southern tribe eventually. He says, now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for, to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? I gave you everything. <laughs> I've done it all. Now, So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed and I will break down its walls and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste and it will not be pruned or hoed. My briars and thorns will come out and I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of the host is the house of Israel and the men of Judah his delighted plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. And so here, as you turn back to the text in Mark, Jesus is taking this beautiful illustration, this beautiful teaching that was given to the prophet Isaiah to give to the nation of how they had rejected God. And so now the, the, the owner is God, the vineyard is the nation. And so the vineyard represents Israel and its tendents, its religious leaders. It's representing them. And the servants, the servants that come, they, they're probably anyone from Moses to John the Baptist. Think about that. And the vineyard, they were given leadership. 
They were given Abrahams and Moses and Joshua, Davids and prophets and kings and people. They were given the law. Think about this. They were given the law of God and they were given priests to teach them to obey and worship. And they were given tremendous grace. They were given a tremendous means of temporary forgiveness till the the Messiah would come. And each and every time they did not produce fruit. They gave the owner nothing. When the harvest time came to gather fruit of all of the graciousness of God, it was stolen. It was stolen. For Moses to John the Baptist, the owner sent to gather. Peter says it this well in his second sermon after Pentecost. He says, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that is the Christ would suffer, has been fulfilled. The Bible says over and over that the prophets came and spoke the word of God. And one after one, they were rejected. The Bible and history shows what they did. Remember in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, a deacon in the church, stands up and begins to proclaim God's word and what had gone on. And by the time he gets to the climax of his sermon, chapter 7, verse 52, he says this, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? You can see the rocks tossing in their hands. Keep going, Stephen. Keep going. He did. He said they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. Who betray, betrayers and murderers you have now become. Ooh. The Bible says they gnashed their teeth at him and tore their clothes because he spoke truth just as Jesus was doing in Mark 12. The church fathers record that Isaiah was sawn in two by a wooden saw. Jeremiah constantly mistreated and rejected. He was thrown into a pit and tradition tells us that he was stoned in Egypt by his own very people he came to serve. Ezekiel faced hatred and hostility. Amos was forced to flee for his life. Zechariah was despised. And let me let the word of God tell you the rest. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. Recorded in this great chapter of what we call often the hall of faith. In verse 32, it begins to reveal many that suffered. The writer of Hebrews says this, What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms and performed acts of righteousness, attaining the promise, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, for the weaknesses uh, were made strong, becoming mighty in war, putting foreign armies to flight. All of this stuff happened to this nation. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mocking and scourging. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute and afflicted and ill-treated. Men whom the world was not worthy of. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All of these, having gained approval of their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us. That's Jesus. So that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. And so here the Bible records this great blessing God had done. 
And you can see that the scripture is reminding them of the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ in this parable, the judgment of God upon the nation. It isn't hard to realize that in 70 AD, God allows Titus to come in, the great Roman, Roman warrior, and wipe out the temple. The Bible says he left no stone unturned in his judgment over them. The scene is clear. The nation had rebelled um, previously to this. When you get back into the Old Testament, they had intermarried into this pagan culture. He had, he had rescued them out of the pagan culture. They returned right back to it. They had taken the idols of the land they were to destroy. They worshiped Baal and Astros, consumed in their worship with them. Their hatred for God led to them killing the prophets over and over. And in 722, God said, enough. And he sent the Assyrians. And he took the 10 northern tribes and wiped them out. Many of them died. The rest were taken off to slavery. 120 years later, he sends Nebuchadnezzar. The Bible says Nebuchadnezzar was the man of God, meaning God sent him. And he comes in 605, sets his first siege against Jerusalem. It's probably where Daniel and his three friends are taken into Babylon. And siege after siege, all the way to 586, he absolutely levels, levels Jerusalem. The walls and the temple. The same was done later on in 70 AD to the temple. And tens and thousands of Jews were slaughtered and other places placed in slavery in each of these events. And it didn't end there. It didn't end there, even as we understand that Jesus is talking about historical Israel up to that point. But when you think about the apostles, Christ sends out these 12 apostles. And every one of them with the greatest message the nations could ever hear. And guess what they did to them? One by one, the apostles are murdered or banished. But worst of all, in the despising of God's grace of the nation, they reject the Lord Jesus Christ. They reject him, the son. And so Jesus, what he does here in this next point, I want to drive this home. He drives home the point as he transitions the parable of the vineyard to the, corner, the chief cornerstone. Look what he does in verse 10. After telling, they giving the answer that he will come and destroy the, vineyard, the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others, he says this, have you not even read this scripture? And here he begins to quote Psalms 118, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. And this came from the Lord, and is is it marvelous in our eyes? Notice here that Jesus, in order to expose the rejection of not only God, but his word, says this, have you not even read the scriptures? And here he quotes the Psalms 118 verse 22 and Jesus is making immediate application from the story about himself by turning this well-known messianic psalm to be about him. And the imagery of the vineyard changes into the stone which the builders rejected but the chief corner, but becomes the chief cornerstone the imagery is amazing here. The passage most likely is referring to the selection of stones in, in Solomon's temple as you look at the Psalms passage in 118. And so the, they would select these stones and they would pass over stones looking for the perfect stone to build this temple, this place of worship of God upon. And upon examination, the builders rejected this just as the tenants rejected the sun. So they rejected the chief cornerstone. 
But later, that stone, and I want you to think about this, becomes a foundation for worship. In other words, Jesus is showing that the religious leaders are publicly rejecting the Messiah. They're publicly making a statement. We do not receive him. We do not want him. We plan his death. Furthermore, it's a statement that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. All of God's plan, all of the, the ways and abilities to get to the kingdom of God, to have eternal salvation, all come through me, Jesus is saying. And they could not accept that. It's interesting, when you study Peter's sermons in Acts chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, he's around the killers of Christ, right? Remember, they set him, they bring him out of prison, they set him in the middle, and, and the killers of Christ are there, these leaders, and they put him in the middle, and he says this to them as he speaks about Jesus. He says, he is the stone which the builders rejected, and then he adds this into the text, by you. So no longer is it back there. No longer is it back those, those leaders in the vineyard back there. He says, the stone which was rejected by you. And then he says this, the builders, but, um, who are the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And then he adds this great verse, you know this. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And so to the leaders, Jesus did not measure up to their inadequate, imperfect, sinful standards that they thought. They were dead in their sins and they were dead wrong about the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this. They missed the long-awaited holy Messiah, Savior of his people, God's perfect choice because they wanted to hold on to their own will. And they are eternally damned for that. After this, Jesus says in verse 11, this came about for the Lord, from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You'll notice a question mark in your English translation there. The question mark is, as he turns to the people and he says this, you could imagine him turning to these people and he says, this all came about, this selection of Jesus Christ being the cornerstone what all salvation will be built upon. As he turns to them, he looks at them, and, he, and he's in this way he says, isn't this marvelous? It's a statement both to them in question, but also in truth. Isn't this marvelous? I don't know what these people say, but what will we say? Absolutely. It's the most marvelous thing we've ever known, that my salvation is based solely upon the work, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I add nothing to that in order to gain eternal life. It is a marvelous statement. And all believers, true Christians, hold to the statement that salvation comes through Christ alone. In other words, Jesus is turning to the crowd and saying, I am the fulfillment of God's perfect plan. I am the son of the vineyard owner. I am the chief cornerstone. This parable was not hiding truth. Third thought, a parable that demands a response. Look at verse 12. And they were seeking to seize him. And, they yet, and yet they feared the people. For they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. And boy, as you think about this, a, a, a parable that demands a response. And, and, and man, was there a response here, right? Notice the word they, just the part of verse um, 12 there. I, I think this is an important little uh, 
pronoun here. It's distinguishing the members of the Sanhedrin, even from the crowd, because of their fierce desire to kill Christ. Luke, in the recording of this at this point, says that the scribes and Pharisees tried to lay hands on him, now listen to this, that very hour. They were ticked at this. They wanted to kill him that moment, that hour. They wanted to kill him, but they feared the people for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. So this solidifies that, they're, that the wicked tenants, they are the wicked tenants of the vineyard. They're waiting for the sun. They see the sun. There's premeditated murder on their hearts and minds. But the timing of Christ's death was still two days away and they weren't gonna get him until he lays down his life by his own authority. Now, the parable does demand a response, doesn't it? And Jesus warned that these disciples, uh, warned his disciples that, they, that these men hated him. He said to them, if I have not done um, these works among them, they would not have known their sin. But now that I have both seen, I, I have both been seen, I am hated, me and my father as well. And so he warned them of this hatred that was coming just probably in the same time John 15 is recording that. And so the, the parable also proved the hypocrisy. Notice he says that the people feared him. Look at that. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people. They feared the people. I put in my notes, I said, operating, operating in fear of people versus fear of God will always lead to deadly decisions. What are you more afraid of? Are you more afraid of God or or people, Proverbs 29, 25, just jot this down. This is a tremendous proverb. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Who are you afraid of? Jesus himself said, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell. Who do you fear? Are you more concerned what people think about you versus what God thinks about? I think probably the most frightening thing in verse 12 is the very final statement. It says, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And then this phrase, and so they left him and went away. In Genesis chapter 4, God himself comes to Cain, presents himself to Cain, shows him that he knows everything that he's done. I hear you're the blood of your brother crying out from the dirt to me. And then as God graciously deals with Cain, Cain whines and rejects God. And then verse 16, if you look at that, Genesis chapter four, verse 16, the Bible says, and Cain walked out of the presence of God. These men were in the presence of God, God incarnate. They're right there. It's this very sad verse. They have their, the hope of eternal life, the hope of the kingdom they so desperately wanted was right in front of them. They heard the word of God. They, good, they knew God's word was speaking about them and yet they walked away from their only hope. The parable reveals that their response and their decision was made. Final thought, just a point of application. The parable is for the church and the world. When you think about this parable, and you think about all that takes place, if you compare it to our time, there is no greater time in history than we should know the truth. Think about right now what we have. Think about the availability of God's word. Many of you are looking at it on your phones, your pads. You have dozens of Bibles at home. 
You hear it on the radio, you hear it on the internet, it's constantly proclaimed to us. We have freedom in this country particularly to preach the way we preach with no one seizing us yet. The word of God is proclaimed, it's easy to hear the gospel. Many of us were raised from knee-high to a grasshopper to this point right now, hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've had Sunday school teachers, VBS teachers. We've had moms and dads, grandparents. We've had all kinds of people pour truth into us. There is no greater time to know God's word and understand that he has sent his son to us. And think about this. God has graciously provided a vineyard of truth for us. A vineyard of truth. And we know the eschatological understanding of this. The Jews fall under the discipline of God. He develops his church. And one day he will make us together one people. And right now he has given us everything we know. We live in the vineyard of God. I'm amazed at that. My roots go deep down into his truth. I can be like a tree planted by living waters. I have no excuses. We live in the spiritually richest time of the world. Like Israel, God gave the church tremendous gifts. Ephesians 4 says this, he gave some as apostles. You can see the procession that he does here. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets. He's given evangelists, and now he's given pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith. But like Israel, God's word is rejected over and over in the church today. We don't like all of his teaching. We don't like the clear teaching on the family. We don't like the clear teaching on sin and judgment and hell, and so our churches refuse to use those words anymore. They don't like the people that have been sent to them to call them to repentance. He knows the effort that man is building a designer Jesus one that they can live with, one that they can live their life out. He knows this is all happening. But the Bible is reminding us he is watching this. He sees sin. He sees this and he sends to us people to preach the word of God to us. And there is a day of reckoning that all those who really truly belong to him are in his vineyard, he will take into eternity forever. But those who don't, who have rejected his word, will come to a terrible end. Christian, do you believe God's word? Do you believe all of it? Are you committed to it? Do you study it, know it, and obey it? This is a mighty lesson, isn't it? They were given so much. You know, your mind was running in history. All that God did for that nation. He says, I'll drive them out. I'll take care of it. I want you to have no credit. He starts that in Egypt as we're looking in our Exodus series. There was no way they could help. They were beat down people. He did everything to show who he was. And yet in the end, they reject him. Counseled a person on the phone this week who said, I trained my son. I taught them. I raised them in the faith. I was not a perfect father. All was given to him. Everything he needed to follow Jesus in the end, he rejected him. See, it still repeats, doesn't it? It still repeats, and so Christian, this, this parable is for us. Believe the word of God. Receive those who teach you and instruct you and love you. 
Know it, follow him, submit to Christ. Not because you have to, but because you're captured by him. You're captured by the fact that God would send his only beloved son to do something that you could not, I could not do. Are you captured by that? Or are you just playing around with Christianity? Friend, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, this parable is for you as well. There is only but one way to the Father, to eternal life. It is through Jesus Christ. And even by this sermon, you are accountable now to hearing the truth. You cannot get to the Father except through the Son. And if you reject that, you will be one of the wretched. One who sees the eternal damnation and judgment of the Son. So I think this passage is both clear for us believers. Let us not reject the gracious time we live in, the vineyard we live in as the church, and and grow why we have daylight, because the night is coming someday. And those of us, or you, that might be in here or hearing this sermon, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a sword that is coming. Bend your knee. Ask him to open your heart Tell him your sins are driving you farther away from him. Paul told Timothy, said, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Tell him, I am faithless, God. I cannot come to you on my own. And he will redeem you. Christian, day's getting short. One of our dear loved ones is about ready to step in the presence of God. You might be next. Let's live for Jesus. The day is short. The owner's coming. Father, we thank you for a tremendous reminder of your truth in this parable. Lord, I, I, I stagger at our Lord, the scene that is set there, Lord. Men in full hatred of him, plotting and scheming and planning to kill him, and yet he speaks perfect truth to them. He is undeterred by their anger and their hatred. He knows the Father's will. He knows his hour. Oh, Lord Jesus, I speak for every Christian hearing this of my voice. We thank you that you stood that test. We thank you that you did not cave and fear people. We thank you that nothing could keep you from that cross. Even though you had the authority to lay it down and take it up, even though you had the authority to call angels to wipe out your enemies, You did not. And we sit here this morning as Riverbend Community Church, a body of believers that claim salvation through that cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of the vineyard owner. He is our only hope. We rest in nothing else. We have no plan B. You are it, Lord Jesus Christ. For those that do not know him, oh Lord, arrest their heart tonight. Rest it right now, Lord. Do not let them leave, Lord. Cause them to bend the knee right now where they sit, that they would plead that Jesus would take over their life, they would be captured by him. Lord, let us Christians not grow old of this truth. Let our hearts be warm time and time again as we think about the beautiful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this reminder. In Jesus' name, amen.